is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, March 24, 2023, the last weekend without any Major League Baseball games that count until sometime in November. Think about that. Today will be better than yesterday. Working in Bristol, Sarah, Taylor, Bruce. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana. Uh, yesterday, we got back to the sight and sounds of normal spring training now that we're past the WBC. Matt Olson is going nuts this spring. Waiting on the 2-1 pitch, here it is. Crushed, deep right field, and that's gonna disappear. Way over the right field wall, homer number seven this spring for Matt. And the Braves tie it up on the two-run home run by Matt Olson. That call from the Braves radio network. We're gonna find out from Sarah Langs later about seven home runs in spring training. How often does that happen? Jeremy Pena, who looks to be the leadoff hitter for the Astros to start the season with the Jose Altuve sideline with that broken thumb. Uh, he had a nice moment on Thursday. Here's Pena. It's one ball and one strike to the reigning ALCS and World Series MVP. This one hit deep to left, and that ball is gone. Jeremy Pena with his third home run of the spring. Salvi Perez. Had a good moment for the Kansas City Royals facing the Padres. Drives this one to deep left field. David Dahl going back, looking up, and it's gone. Well into the berm, a two-run shot for Salvador Perez. His second home run of the spring. Some news that broke on Thursday. Veteran infielder Jed Lowry has retired after 14 Major League Baseball seasons. He gave the news to the San Francisco Chronicle and talked about how much he appreciated the fans in the cities where he played during the course of his career. Braves closer Rysel Iglesias will start the season on the injured list because of low-grade inflammation. Braves manager Brian Snitker said that uh, Iglesias will not resume throwing for seven days. Atlanta, course, opens its season March 30th against the Nationals. They're hoping that he'll be back sooner rather than later. Adam Wainwright suffered an injury during the WBC during a weight room workout. He's going to start the year on the injured list. The star of the WBC, without a doubt, other than Shoei Otani, was Trey Turner. And when he returned to the Phillies, it was business as usual. Sweet. And a high fly left field. Forget about it. Trey Turner has gone deep again. Off the roof of the Tiki Pavilion. And Trey Turner picks up right where he left off in the World Baseball Classic. On top of the Tiki Bar. Goodness gracious. Yeah, that was Scott Fransky with that call on the Phillies radio network. The moment, though, that will stick with everybody from this Phillies exhibition on Thursday happened in the second inning. Reese Hoskins going after a ground ball. Yeah, pitch. And it's a high bouncer to first. Hoskins backs up. In and out of his glove. And so Meadows will be on. And Hoskins clutching his knee. That's not a good sign. He retreats on this ball. Right there. And he knew it right away. Lift him up here, but he'll get some assistance as he goes to the cart. They just don't want him putting any kind of weight on there. Yeah, it was devastating. Non-contact injury a torn ACL in his left knee, presumably Reese Hoskins out for the year. We'll be talking about Carl Ravitch, about the impact of that injury. Taylor, what else you got? 
Buster, a couple things. Next week, we're going to do something different. We're going to do our shows Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday to sort of drive into that first weekend of action. I know our schedule can be a little irregular, but I think this is a good move for us. So be on the lookout on Wednesday for uh, the first podcast of the week. And also, Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy is celebrating their 100th episode with 18 of Julie Foudy's teammates from the 1999 Women's World Cup Championship team. Join Mia Hamm, Brandy Chastain, Carla Overbeck, among others, for some laughs, memories about this iconic team that's Laughter Permitted. Every Wednesday, listen wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. The NFL schedule drops this week. And you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Download the app or visit VividSeats.com today. That's VividSeats.com. Dot com today code baseball vivid seats experience it live dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority especially against nasty parasites that's why you got to check out next guard plus a foxaloner moxidectin and pyrantal chewable tablets next guard plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. All aboard. It's the Rabbit Train with Carl Rabbit. And the Rabbit Train next week will be in Texas uh, for our season opener, which the White Sox playing in Houston. And then a few days after that, the first Sunday night game of the year. Uh, we've got the Texas Rangers playing host of the Philadelphia Phillies. And, Carl, I, I had planned on getting into all that today. But, uh, you know, what happened yesterday in baseball, we have to get to that first. Reese Hoskins goes down with an injury. Uh, he's, you know, going to be out for the year. It's incredible to see all these injuries happening to these National League East contenders. And in the case of Reese Hoskins, he's someone who's so well-respected in the game uh, you know, within that clubhouse, just devastating for the Phillies. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we've known Reese for a long time. I think we got to know him a little bit more during last year's uh, Philadelphia Phillies season. We talked, Reese and I did a lot uh, during the postseason. We did the series on the radio and, and got to know him pretty well and his his dogs and those that have passed in his life, dogs, those that he's getting, uh, his you know his career in Philadelphia has been has been up and down, and the Phillies fans have embraced him, and then they've booed him and loathed him and re-embraced him. The spike of the bat was as you know as memorable a moment last year during the postseason as any that we've seen, um, and it's a it's a free agent year. So on a personal level, you feel terrible, you know, for Hoskins. Um, because I think I think he he was really one of the stitches on the baseball in that clubhouse that has 
stitches that sort of rise above everyone else, especially now that you've added Turner and Harper and Castellanos. He, he fit right in. He's one of those grinding guys. Doesn't always look good, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's awful. I, you know, I, I know you and I talk about the college basketball experience and having just gone through an SEC season where the best player on Tennessee's basketball team was running up the court and he just fell down because his knee gave out. You know, when you see and hear non-contact injury, yeah, it, it seems inevitable that that's an ACL and it's torn and you're out for 12 months. It's terrible. Yeah, and to your point about you know him going through the ups and downs in Philadelphia, I, it occurred to me, I had a long conversation with him uh, just earlier this week. I'm working on this Kyle Schwarber piece about Schwarber being a leader in the clubhouse. And as I was talking with Reese, it just occurred to me, like, he's now kind of a grizzled veteran, right? Yeah. I remember when he first, his first year in the big leagues, he came on the podcast to help us with postseason coverage. And you knew right away you know, this is someone who's just a natural and, and how comfortable he was and speaking with the media. And and now he's got all that scar tissue from having gone through the ups and downs. And now he's played in a World Series and you're excited for him, you know, had going into his walk year and, and knowing how important he is that team, you know, hopefully set himself up for a big contract. And now he's yeah. in a tough spot. You know, he's yeah. going to be a, a free agent years end. There's <clears throat> actually a couple stories in Philadelphia today. Like if Reese Hoskins... Billy's career is over. What does this mean going forward? And you're kind of heartbroken for him. What does it mean, do you think, for the Phillies lineup? Because, I, you know, part of me yesterday, too, is obviously disappointed for him, but also, like, bummed that we don't get to see the Philadelphia lineup as we thought it was going to be after they got Trey Turner. Yeah, and I've seen the stories. Um, you know, one of the things that Dave Dombrowski does is he tends to bring in guys that can make a difference right away. You know, he's he has got a reputation, rightfully so, of being able to get teams to World Series. When you bring in Trey Turner, you feel like this is the missing piece to the puzzle. The puzzle brought you all the way to the World Series, and one of the pieces was Reese Hoskins. So now that he's out of there, do you take Alec Bohm and move him from third base to first base? Do you maybe use Derek Hall as a platoon guy, um, you know, against righties because he's such a big bat? The, the, the bigger challenge for me is is the replacement of of that kind of clutch, you know, bat. That, that's what, to me, he became because there could be at-bats that didn't look very good at all. Uh, but if last year's postseason was any indication, you know, when you needed a big hit, he was that guy. In a lot of ways, what Alec Bone went through last year uh, with the whole, I hate it here, this place sucks, uh, to his reclamation was sort of what Hoskins has done over his career there. Uh, he just did it in a much longer way. But there were so many of these things, and it feels like, as you know, there are certain cities, certain markets that you've got to be that grizzled, if not veteran, have a grizzled uh, exterior um, and, and also interior. Like, learn to let it go uh, off you like water does a turtle's back. And he, he seemed to finally get to a place where it's like, this is all part of a deal. And when you start to read stories in local papers, because you're a free agent and it hasn't always been one where oh, he's coming back, we've got to have Reese Hoskins. It, it does, you know, it does make you, it does make you sad. Makes you, makes you, makes you upset. But I, I don't know if they move Bohm over there. I think Bohm become very comfortable in a good third baseman. I think they figure out somebody else to do it, even though I know they have some people who could probably play third while Bone moves to first better than they have somebody who could naturally play first. 
Yeah, and I think that's a position too. During the course of the year, you'll be able to find a solution at some point. You know, Feels that way. I, and I wondered last night uh, if we're going to hear about Nick Castellanos, for example, maybe taking yeah. some ground balls. He's played in the infield. He played on the other side of the infield. And if you move Castellanos out of out of the outfield and where he was uh, absolutely playable during the postseason last year, but you know the reputation is he's not a great defender. Maybe if you move him out of the outfield, you find a corner outfielder and you make that spot better. Um, but I, and I'm, it, during the course of the year, you'll know more about whether you need a left-handed hitter or a right-handed hitter for that lineup. Dave Dombrowski will find a solution. I think we right. can say that with a lot of confidence during the year. So now we've seen the Mets lose their closer, the best reliever in baseball, Edwin Diaz. Uh, spring training probably has not gone as well for the Braves as they had hoped. Uh, they wind up landing on Orlando Arce as their shortstop, Von Grissom. Yeah, yeah. Didn't go in there and, and uh, you know, grab that position. Their closer, Rysel Iglesias, is going to start the year in the injured list. And Reese Hoskins goes out. In the aftermath of all that, how are you <laughs> handicapping? How are you picking one, two, and three in the, Ameri- in the uh, National East? Well, the Diaz thing is just enormous because when you don't have that guy at the end of your bullpen, and he was the most assured lockdown closer and my gosh, we saw it in the WBC. We saw it that night. Um, devastating. Can you find closers? We've certainly heard you can, but you're not going to find him. Nope. And he affects everybody leading up to him. So, you know, that, that's an enormous that, – that's, that's the biggest injury of all. The Phillies, with their depth, seem to be able to absorb. And as you said, and we agree, Dombrowski will find somebody. The Iglesias injury doesn't – feel huge uh, because they're sort of suggesting there's nothing structurally wrong. And when you, you know, when you see that, that's, that's a positive. When you hear a manager say, we hope to get him back sooner rather than later, there's still some gray area around it. Um, But he's not Edwin Diaz and the Braves, I think have the ability to figure that out. The shortstop thing to me was always going to be an issue coming in because I think Dansby Swanson often was overlooked. I mean, I, yes, he, He's such a glue guy, uh, clutch hits, you know, makes every play defensively. So, you know, to, to me, it was, it was going to be the Philadelphia Phillies first because I love their pitching. Part of that was based on wow. major pitching. Okay. Yeah. I, I, always, I thought me. the Phillies, yeah, I thought the Phillies were going were gonna to finish first the way that they improved their bullpen. And, and, I, and I was hoping that Painter was going to be one of the uh, rotation pieces for them. The fact that, you know, that, that's one injury we didn't really touch on. I'm assuming, based on the silence, that he's not going to be there. Um, and as a result, it changes dramatically my opinion of the Phillies. But the other injuries to the other teams, I, I, I would going to stick with what I – I have the Phillies finishing first and the Mets and Braves in, in a deadlock. If I had to pick one, I'd put the Mets ahead of the Braves because I, mm. I love their starting pitch, pitching and position players. But I, I've, been, I've been pretty – bullish on the Phillies and and even with Hoskins injury I'll, I'll stay there okay I, I'm gonna pick the Braves to finish first in that division I I, th- I agree with you I think that Dansby's exit is uh you know has been uh underrated in terms of its potential impact but I think they have so many good young players on that team that they will do. ascend you know Michael Harris the second uh, it feels like every year Austin Riley takes another step forward is, uh, into being one of baseball's best players. Uh, you know, young starters in their rotation. Uh, Matt Olson, my God, he's just <laughs> killing it this spring. Like, Maybe he he's Austin like Riley. Like, 
he maybe the Atlanta thing, that's how it happens. Austin Riley's gone. Maybe Olsen, who was great last year, finds another level. I mean, the more comfort living in the home, back. Who knows? I mean, that was a tough shoe to fill when you're filling Freddie Freeman's, and he was great. I, I hear you. The spring's been a joke for him. Yeah, uh, and with Bryce Harper coming back sooner, maybe that pulls the Phillies closer. I've got the Mets second. Uh, yeah. I've got the uh, I've got the Phillies third. But it, that that division will be fascinating. I'm glad in our first broadcast uh, we'll be able to you know talk about one of those teams. Uh, the manager uh, now of the team that has to make a decision at closer is someone you know well, Buck Showalter. He was actually part of an advertisement that's been put out by Major League Baseball highlighting one of the new rules. Daniel Vogelbach also was in that. Give a listen to this, Carl. These new bases are wider than the old ones. Is he focused on the size of the new bases? Now it will be easier to steal second base. Is he thinking about stealing second base? Seven years in the league. And he's never stolen a single base. Don't steal second base. The pitcher's not looking. I am not looking. Yeah. So he gives, a, he gives a thumbs up to the dugout, like, here I go. And Buck is like, don't run. I, I thought it was hilarious. It, it translates better if you actually watch the advertisement, but I, I enjoyed that. I, I Look, I'm laughing at it, and I didn't physically see it. I'm laughing because the Listening to Buck, that's exactly how Buck talks. Yes. Uh, that is exactly who he is and that sort of very dry, very down to earth. You, you can think, you know, for, for me, Buck would say, you can think about it, but you're not going. Like, don't, don't, don't. You're not going to go. You want to have fantasies. You, you want to go off and every night get into bed and think about stealing? You can do that some, but you're not running. We're not letting you have that green light. And if you do, you're going to be sitting next to me the rest of the season. I, like I can see and hear, that's that's beautiful, Buck. That's the Buck we got to know in that green room, man, sitting there. You realize there is a good sense of humor here. That's that's very funny. That's really funny. Really funny. All right. I thought you'd want to hear this, too. This was after the WBC final, you know, ending with Shohei Otani pitching to Mike Trout. Hockey superstar Connor McDavid was speaking to reporters the other day, and he said this. I thought it was really cool. It's what we've been asking for in hockey for a long time, right? Um, you know, it was best on best. And, um, you know, look, everyone's talking about baseball. And, you know, did you see, you know, Otani versus Trout? And, you know, that's what hockey's been missing for, you know, almost a decade now. So, um, yeah, that's what, we've been, that's what we've been asking for. Carl, when's the last time baseball was held up as the model that all the other sports are shooting for? I thought it was one of yeah. the coolest things I've heard this spring. No, it was one of the coolest events we've ever seen. And you're right. It's not only being held up, it's being talked about. This point is right on. I mean, this is what Major League Baseball, this is what baseball has wanted, uh, you know, and needed for a long time. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm writing something and I'm, I'm thinking about how when you have baseball put itself out on a pedestal, that's one thing. When you have preachers of the game whose voices are being heard now and sort of the flock is growing and its momentum comes from things like the WBC, it will come from things like the rule changes. The idea that one of the great hockey players of his generation, by the way, young guy, Connor McDavid, yes. is not Sidney Crosby. Um, 
that's a big part of that. Like he's paying attention to baseball and it may not even be the sport. I mean, it may not literally be the fact that there's a bat and a ball and a pitcher and a hitter. It's this, it's this worldwide exposure. Again, uh, I fall on the sword a lot, but we've had this in baseball for a long time. It's the little league world series. It's, it's literally a miniature version of the WBC. You have people from around the globe competing on the same field, and we remember the excitement of Chris Drury and Trumbull winning because it was against the world. As you said, Connor, the best of the best. Now it manufactures itself every four years at the WBC. And i would be honest, Buster, I, I, there, there is room for growth and room for moving it. The one small aspect that you wish you could improve on is when the team from the United States faces the team from Japan, their, their best pitchers are able to participate, starting pitchers, and currently they're not. So as much as it's a, a great reflection of the best, not every best is able to do it for very good, legitimate reasons. But that's yeah. the one thing I wish we could figure out how to accomplish. So I've had conversations with executives around the sports since the WBC final the other night. And and it's interesting because at the team level, as I've said on various shows this week, there will never be total comfort with the idea of sending your players to work in the hands of other managers, other coaches. That will never change. But there also was in these conversations an absolute concession, given the greatness of this year's WBC, like, you know what, we got to get over it. That's just the way it's going to go. But I agree with you. I think there's a room for growth going forward. And Major League Baseball is an opportunity to evaluate that. One idea I sent out on Twitter yesterday with this whole thing about pitchers and when they're available. Because as you know, privately behind the scenes, there's a lot of unhappiness at the team level about the communication, about specific pitchers, you know, being sent off to the WBC teams, how much work they're getting, when they work, or the relievers going to throw in consecutive days. There's a lot of unhappiness. And to me, uh, uh, for games that are played in the United States, the United States, there is an easy solution, which is, in some sense, have the major league teams serve uh, the WBC much in the way that you see minor league affiliates during the course of the year. They do this all year. Oh, a starting pitcher is needed uh, for Tuesday. You know what? Uh, get that guy on a plane, get him over, and he can fill in the staff. The other day, the day of the WBC final, Justin Verlander threw for the New York Mets. And, and I say this, you know, I, I don't know if Justin would have wanted the opportunity to start the, the WBC final, but give him the opportunity. Call him three days ahead. Hey, we see that you sure, are available. Yeah. You're going to pitch that day. And just promote him. Get him on a, on a, in a car, 45 minutes, an hour. Go down to Miami. And pitching that game and, you know, relief pitchers, same way, put out the call. Hey, who's going to be available? Activate those guys for that game. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't think it's that much of a stretch. And I think also you allow the teams to keep these pitchers in their respective camps with the major league teams where they can monitor their work on a daily basis because that's what drives the teams crazy, the lack of communication with the WBC coaches. What do you think? Yeah. No, I, I look, that idea is fantastic. Um, and maybe, yeah, I, I look, I love the idea. Maybe what you do is when the WBC rosters um, come out, there, there are literally a list of guys that can be considered. 
They want to participate. Verlander could be on the list. Scherzer right. could be on the list. They, they want to participate. If the opportunity arises, at least everybody knows there's a transparency. They may call Justin Verlander. They, they, they may very well call uh, you know, Aaron Nola, whatever it may be. I, I, love the, I love the idea. I guess what also, and you know this as well as anybody, um, when you're involved in this sport of baseball, in particular Major League Baseball, and there have been so many self-inflicted wounds, why is it that we, we seem to find baseball put under a lens or a microscope, m- microscope or a spotlight that other sports seem not to be put under in a sense of, do you recall these conversations around basketball dream no. teams in the Olympics? So why is it, why is it so magnified? Well, and again, I think it's a compliment. I, I really think it's because people still are so enmeshed with their baseball teams This is something we're going to invest in for eight months. We love this sport. We watch it every night. We don't want our best player to be hurt. You know, it's you're holding on to this like it's a like it's a, you know, a piece of China in a China shop that can fall off and just crumble. Like baseball players don't just get hurt more often than other athletes. They're in good shape. They're in good condition. They don't break. But when something like Diaz happens, when Altuve happens, immediately the arrows start being shot at the WBC and Major League Baseball. It's it's just doesn't it doesn't seem it doesn't seem balanced, and that's where I always I can't understand it. We see it with steroids, we see it with gambling, we see it with a commissioner. Yeah, right. Everything comes at you like this in baseball with a sledgehammer, and the other the other sports. Maybe I'm biased, and I probably am. Se- seem to come at you, you know, with a with somebody just kind of going tick 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 tick, and baseball, boom. I, you're 100 percent right, and and in in no uh, uh, case is that more apparent than with steroids. You're right. The, the idea, like I covered the NFL for a year, and I walked away from that in 2002, a long time ago. Like, oh my god, I can't believe how many steroids in the game, and and fans just didn't care. Um, and just to one to that idea about. Uh, essentially using the 30 major league teams as feeders for the WBC, that wouldn't only benefit the USA team. And I put it out on of social course, media. People course. are saying, Oh, that's, that's just uh, something that would help us. No, like you're telling me t- the Dominican Republic team, if they got into the semifinals, they couldn't potentially benefit from that or the team from Puerto Rico or team from Venezuela. Absolutely. The, a bunch of teams would benefit potentially from uh, drawing off of those other clubs. Here's my other idea, too, and I I think there's one natural way for Major League Baseball to build off of this incredible WBC, and that would be to work the semifinals and finals into the All-Star Week. And I think you and I have talked about this. So imagine if we had Monday of All-Star Week, uh, we had uh, the Home Run Derby on Monday, the WBC semifinals on Tuesday with the players all in midseason form, on Wednesday, you'd have the All-Star Game, and on Thursday, All-Star Final, off day Friday for everybody in the sport, pick up the season on Saturday. What would you yeah. think? No, I think that, I think the All-Star break is the time to do it. I yes. think the pushback is going to be, and I don't necessarily agree with it, the pushback is going to be, well, our team isn't going to be the same one that participated in March at the middle of the All-Star break. And then the question becomes, who, who are you able to add uh, can you subtract players? Do you come up with new teams, or do you have the the that sort of transparent 
number of people that you can build from. Here's the group. Here are the pitchers that are interested in doing this that we talked about. Come All-Star break, you then add them to that lineup. If there are in, if there are four injuries to WBC players, how do you replace them once you get to the All-Star? There's all sorts of questions, but I, I don't look at those as roadblocks. I, I look at those things as hurdles we can all jump over. Yes, I think it would make that that All-Star week oh enormous. Oh, my God. I think, yeah, I think you also have to, as a result of that, though, and this is something owners are challenged to do, is, is reduce the number of major league games in a season. Because, they, they, I mean, you really are stretching this number of intense baseball games uh, even more so. The break is a big deal for players. You know, those that don't go to the All-Star game, and even some of those that do, either enjoy the break or miss the break. So if you have to reduce the schedule to 156 or 54, whatever the number is, that, that may allow them to be more inclined to, to say we're, we're all on board. Because all the time with baseball, as you know, you've got 30 owners. They have 30 interests. They like to suggest we're all interested in the game. Truly, if you look in the mirror, we're interested in you know, the Dodgers and the Royals and the Yankees and every one of those teams, that, that's the challenge. And I, again, with regards to the WBC, I think you have, you have different interests. I think there are baseball lovers who think like, go, let, this is so good for the game. I love baseball. I want it. And then there are those that are like, eh, I like it, but I got to worry about my own team. I got to worry about my own ass. Like if we stink because I lose two players, which is unlikely to happen, but in the event it does, well, then I'm being judged on the product I'm putting out there on the field, and because yes. they got hurt doing something that I'm not involved in, it's a hard one. It's a, it's, but I love the idea. I love the idea of the all-star break for the semis and finals. All right, Ravi, great to talk with you, uh, and I'll see you in Texas uh, middle of next it. week. So you know who's in Texas, by the way, quickly. We're in Texas for the Thursday night game. The women's final four is in Houston, and then we're going to fly over to Dallas or drive over to Dallas and the Swifties are going to be there for a little free are you night. Going to the, have you determined in the end that whether or not you're going to the Taylor Swift concert? Well, sir, what, what poll do I have with Taylor Swift that I could go to a concert? The only way that happens is if – I don't even know. Does Clemens okay. have any poll so with that? Does Sarah Lange have any poll with that? No, Sarah Abbott. I mean, she's the number one Swiftie in the world, and I need Sarah to jump in here. Tickets now, I think, Sarah, right, they're going for like 40 bucks a pop front row in the Taylor Swift concerts in Arlington? Yeah, something like that. Don't say I'm the number one Swifty in the world, though, because they will come at me. <laughs> I'm so scared <laughs> of the power of the Swifties. I'm probably in the top 100,000. <laughs> well, I, and so I was looking at some of the tickets when we first learned about it. It's like $2,000 to be like a mid-row, right? In, the, in, a, in a completely average seat for those concerts. I checked yesterday for or her show in Massachusetts. And yeah. right now it's like $600 for like mid, in the middle. Wow. So. I, heard, I heard it comes, I heard as you get closer to the show, there are, the prices come down a little bit that they crashing of the website is is subsided and now when you get closer to the show maybe you and i bust a roll in there day of or saturday night we just roll over there and we, we pick up a 40 dollar ticket no chance that's happening not because we wouldn't go there's no 40 dollar ticket zero <laughs> all right ravi i will talk to you later all right 
Roger Clemens won the Cy Young Award seven times, which is why we're excited, Roger, to have you on our opening broadcast of the 2023 season on Thursday night. Uh, the Houston Astros, defending champion Houston Astros, will be playing host the White Sox. Welcome aboard. Thank you, Buster. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. I've done done a, a little bit here and there for the Sox when they come into Houston or uh, with the, the Astros when they asked me to go on radio or TV. But uh, ESPN is one of my favorite. I like listening to you guys and uh, keeping up with it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So one of the things we just got done a Zoom uh, prep call for that broadcast. And, you know, they're they're asking for ideas. And I said, well, the Astros have a chance to be the first team to go back to back since the 98 to 2000 Yankees. And you, of course, you know, were on those teams in 99 and 2000, the last team to go back to back. They said, we got to ask Roger what's going to happen for the Astros. You know that team. You know what it takes. You know all about the hangover effect. I remember having a conversation. Uh, I'm trying to remember the manager in recent years who his team had won the title. I think maybe it was Brian Snitker. He'd reached out to other managers and asked them about the hangover from a World Series. And the other manager saying, it's a real thing. So with that in mind, tell me what you think has to happen for the Astros this year. Well, they, they've been plugging holes, you know, uh, uh, they've been doing it famously. I mean, um, you know, a career gone and they come in with Pena and I think they're going to try and do the same thing with Verlander gone. Uh, some big arms that they, they feel that they can count on. It's no different than when I go to spring training and, and talk to them about having two frontline guys, as you know, Buster, if we can, if I can jump out there uh, with a, with a, a Roy Oswalt or somebody like that and go 10 games over, both of us do it, say 21 and 11, 20 and 10, we're in the dance. Not to belittle the other starters, but they only have to be uh, fairly average, 12 and 12, eat us a bunch of innings. I want to say, you know, 220, 230 innings, but that never happens right now because some of these guys, you know, are going four and five innings and they're out of there. So, um, I, I, you know, again, we lost Altuve, and so, and that's going to be two months. Uh, that's, that's a big problem. I, I don't know if they're going to look, uh, I'm, I think I'll, I'll know more this week, um, whether they're, they're going to look within right now, but I think when, uh, people start putting their final roster out, they're going to be, there's going to be some phone calls made and, um, and, and looking maybe to go external with that, with the plugging that with Altuve. So, um, again, just in, just bringing it all into, uh, to one big fold, uh, we've been fortunate here in Houston. It's kind of like when you talked about the Yankees having a nice run. Uh, this is a baseball town right now. Uh, football is non-existent. And um, I think Mr. Crane and his staff, they're trying to uh, continue to capture that and win. The guys know how to win. As you can see, they play with a calmness. Um, they'll start off uh, just like everybody else trying to win series uh, when they start off against the White Sox. So, Again, I look at the health, the main thing. I think they have some big arms. They have some big bullpen arms. Um, and as we talked about in a team meeting, you'll use more than the 40-man roster, the 40 guys. You'll, you'll get into about 50, 55 guys to help them win this year if, if, in fact, they can get to the dance and win again. Yeah, I thought that, you know, Roger, the, the 98 team won 125 games. Then the next spring, they make the trade for you. Uh, I, I thought year by year by year, it got harder for guys on your team to push the rock back up the hill. 
It's like that emotional challenge going in, knowing that in some respects, what happened in April and May didn't seem as relevant because you knew you'd go into October. And so uh, I thought it was important to bring in new guys every year. And this year, the Astros, for example, bring in Jose Abreu, who's dying to win a championship. You know, he's first baseman, guy who's been a leader of the White Sox in the past. Did you feel like that, that the, the roster turnover was important as teams tried to repeat uh, as champions? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great point. Um, we, you know, again, you're bringing in guys that know how to win. I, I was thirsty and hungry to win when they brought, when Mr. Steinbrenner brought me over to New York. Hey, we had an all-star at every position. That's why I tell people about Joe Torrey having a great manager. Joe also had a wonderful bench coach in Don Zimmer. So, uh, you know, baseball lifer. I don't know that Zim ever cast a check outside of the game, uh, the game of baseball. But, um, you know, Joe was um, Joe was uh, famous again at handling our personalities. He handled the media uh, properly. He handled our personalities properly, and and we policed ourselves. But you're right when you bring in different guys in. Um, you know, Cash was that way. I mean, uh, I think Cash understood, you know, my my mentality that I was going to take out on the field. But he also knew um, the the funness that a lot of people don't see that I would bring uh, inside the clubhouse, or um, you know, an approach that that uh, that you have to have to win. And um, you know, the the Astros are they're going to be like that. I mean, they they've got again. I think Altuve is their heartbeat, so they're going to need to get him back. They're going to need to stay afloat while he's gone for these two months. And um, uh, so, you know, I, I'm going to – I'll watch that as closely. But, again, it's it's the pitching staff that I talk about. I, I I was teasing some of the guys about going four or five innings. I remember teasing one of the pitchers. Um, I was actually at the stadium, and I was talking to the IT guys. I call them propeller heads. And, and I'm kind of in the middle of the road on the analytics. I'm not top end or bottom. I'm in the road because I still believe – you have to have an eye and a heart test with some guy when you're going out there. And uh, I want to hear what he's going to say, or I want to know what he's, uh, how he's feeling possibly in the sixth, seventh inning. Um, you know, again, it's when I say it, I almost smile or laugh about it because these guys don't have to, you know, they go through the lineup twice and they know they're pretty much coming out of the game because maybe the average goes up a hundred points on them uh, going to third time through the lineup. But I remember uh, being in the locker room and one of the guys came in after five innings. He was winning two to one, came out of the game and looked at me and he took a big, deep breath. He knew I was there to watch, took his jersey off and threw it in the floor in the laundry bag. And I said, hold up, guys. I was talking. I said, hey, what are you doing? He goes, oh, Mr. Clemens, I'm done. I'm done. I go, OK. I go, I know you're done. But I said, you want five innings. I go, pick that jersey up, hang it back in your locker. There's no way it's dirty. I mean, he, <laughs> you don't have to walk. And he, he I, he started to pick it up and I said, no, I'm just kidding. I wasn't, but uh, I was, I was just messing with him. So again, I, I, I think the staff, I think um, very rarely do you have a world championship team and you have two or three jobs that are wide open uh, two for two for sure in the starting rotation and the bullpen. So it's going to be interesting to see who steps up. They made some, they made some strides right now in spring training, but it's going to be uh, interesting, interesting to see for me what's going to happen when they, they picked the 26 guys to, to come here to Houston. So tell me what you see in Shohei Otani, what you saw in him during the WBC as a pitcher. Because that I think that when you talk to folks around baseball, they talk about it being remarkable how much he's improved since he got uh, to Major League Baseball. Yeah, Shohei, it was, it was awesome. First thing I got to tell you, Buster, is that I let my son Cody know with his strikeout that we took the lead in the father-son 
Major League Baseball strike all-time strikeout list. That will never be broken now. <laughs> and uh, so I was I was messing with him with that. But um, I think the biggest thing I take away from watching, you know, I, I was fortunate to play in the in, in the classic, um, I think in 06. And, um, you know, I just worry about the arms cranking it up that fast, that violently. I mean, he, he threw a couple of, I mean, there, there was a bunch of guys throwing 100 miles an hour. He was throwing 100 miles an hour. I even let one go, um, kind of yanked it in the ground against Trout, I think, at 102. And um, so I think like anybody and somebody like yourself who knows the game, uh, uh, we're going to watch and see how this plays out of maybe a tired arm in April or May. Uh, I think they'll have to keep a close eye out. I know he's, you know, 6'5", he's a strong dude. Um, I love that he has a devastating split finger. I think it's one of the easiest pitches to throw. Um, I, I, I watch how they grip it. Um, I remember when I went over with Team USA and played in Japan, there were two occasions that my agents had me meet with uh, 15 or 20 of the Japanese pitchers. They wanted to see how I gripped, exactly how I gripped and where my thumb was at uh, on the baseball for the split finger. Uh, some of the Latino guys and even the, uh, the the Japanese pitchers, they have smaller hands. Otani and uh, Yu Darvish obviously have pretty good sized hands, so they can they can uh, uh, execute that pitch uh, very nicely. But some of the guys hook a seam uh, when they do it, and in talking to different hitters around the league, uh, they recognize that pitch similar to a knuckleball that comes out. It has a different look to it. And they're able to, uh, you know, really um, identify that early uh, once you let it go. So I, I watch that with Otani. Um, you know, it's going to be incredible uh, with his next contract. You wonder how long that he, he's going to be able to do both uh, at the, the highest level that he does it at. So I think I'm as curious as anybody. It's something that I'm going to watch. Uh, you know, guys on base, running bases, diving head first into home and then gets his glove and goes out to the mound and throws 100 miles an hour. It's it's incredible. And, and the sky's the limit for him. So um, it was definitely great, um, uh, great theater, great baseball to watch when he was facing Trout. That was for sure. So you were very precise during your career in terms of your preparation uh, and your work that you put in between starts, knowing that. Uh, how difficult do you is it in from your perspective what he's doing to stay prepared as a hitter and to stay prepared to pitch at a high level the way he is uh, on the mound? Well, work ethic brings confidence and breeds confidence, uh, and he he doesn't obviously need that because he's established. But um, yes, he, he he I mean you're talking about being detailed. He will have to be extremely detailed. I mean, I think the saying they have it hanging in a couple of the stadiums. They have it at the University of Texas. My only day off was the day I pitched. And um, so I can only imagine um, uh, what a day like – you know, say say he pitches a seven-inning, 115-pitch game. The very next day he's hitting third or fourth in the lineup. Uh, I, I would imagine his day is going to start at 9 a.m. the next day trying to get the soreness out and – uh, whether he's uh, getting worked on. And I mean, it would have to be extremely detailed um, from uh, I, I, I keep um, I keep a really obviously with my four boys and my family and my schedule. I keep a very detailed schedule. I can only imagine what Otani's schedule would look like just from from a work standpoint of what he needs to do to be ready. 
So my guess is, I said on TV yesterday, I think uh, when when he becomes a free agent in the fall, I'm guessing he's going to get, uh, my guess is north of $600 million because of the combination of uh, you know being as great as he's a pitcher, being as great as, as he is a hitter. He's a built-in insurance policy because if he got hurt as a pitcher, you still have a top 10 hitter and the marketability, Roger. Oh, no, there's no question. I, I, I'm... I was thinking this. I was thinking the same types of numbers. You know, I was with Maddox and and, and not too long ago, and, and and Greg and I were talking about how they couldn't afford us uh, right now in the game. But they they uh, they're going to have. It's going to be interesting to see. And, and and again, for me, if it's a ten year deal, I just wonder how long he's going to be able to sustain that high level of doing both. Um, uh, you know, it's you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt him. Again, he's a a big body guy. Uh, and so I think the durability is there, but um, you're right. He does both very, very well. And uh, you know, you're talking about a guy that, that, that uh, hit over, you know, that can hit over 300 and, and win 20 games for you. So, um, and just, again, like you said, as far as people, um, you know, you can go back to the old days where they would count, the fans would count four or five days in a row and know where he's going to, possibly be pitching and they're going to buy their tickets for that game. Yeah, that's what they uh, did with you uh, for sure. So you've gone to from various camps this spring talking with players. Give me a, you know, a, a taste of what a speech from you to a group of uh, guys in the clubhouse would be like. Well, it just depends on the team. You know, when, when I have an opportunity to visit with Houston or um, in this case, uh, once my youngest got traded from Detroit to Philly, you know, um, the, uh, you know, Robbie Thompson, Kay Long, I know the guys, and they knew I was going to be in the Clearwater area. They asked me to come in and visit. And when you visit with a team that's uh, built to win, there's not a whole lot to say other than, um, you know, you got a little taste of it. You got one one ring. You can obviously get a bigger ring. I kind of talked to them about how my first couple of years was about making a generational difference in my family's lives, my mom, my sisters, uh, my immediate family. And then after that, it was about winning championships. and um, you know, uh, you know, talked to him a little bit about that, um, told some great stories, some things that were very important to me, a couple, uh, the 9-11 story that I was going uh, to pitch that uh, that night in New York. I was a, a Yankee, obviously, I think I was going for my 20th against the uh, uh, my former team, the Red Sox. But uh, just keep everything in perspective and understand that the guys that are uh, on the on the fringe of going north with the team, they're going to be utilized big time to get back to a World Series and get back to a situation where you get to the dance. They have the Phillies have obviously two wonderful frontline starters, and um, if they can get back to the dance and win eleven games, that's they they got a little taste of it, and um, and, and they've added some nice pieces to the puzzle there. I mean, uh, uh, Turner absolutely showed showcased himself in the in the classic it was amazing what he was able to do um so again um that's kind of where, where we go with the the pitchers and the and the catchers why I, I make sure that in most of the meetings that i have i have the catchers in there too the catchers are my bread and butter they pay attention to detail before you had that wristband calling pitches i was calling as you know buster i was calling probably 95 percent of my game from the mound with my looks um, uh, so the catcher really had to stay in tune with what was going on when a batter stepped out and, and, or a foul ball or whatever. So, 
Um, you know, I, I, I went from the mid eighties from three by five index cards in my little box. I carried around with me on the road, which I also had the umpires information in there too, and where their hometown was. And then it went to my Blackberry. And then of course it went to my iPhone. And, um, so I could review that stuff in the morning, but, uh, those are the talks that we have just a, a, a real precise deal. You know, a couple of the guys asked me what, uh, to, to start my day off when I'm pitching. And I said, it's the same from a, a Wednesday afternoon businessman special till game seven of the World Series. I'm showering in the morning. I'm already reviewing the lineup. And while I'm reviewing the lineup, I know that I'm going to have second and third and one out at some point in that game, probably. And I get paid to get out of that. I get paid to pitch. I also talked to him about the pitch clock. I think it's been a little more difficult for the big league guys uh, to handle the pitch clock since the minor league guys have already trained with it. Um, and I told a lot of guys that are pretty good pitchers that if you not you don't focus and turn your little focus meter up a little bit, you're going to turn into a power thrower because the catcher's going to either call the pitch or you're going to call the pitch. You're going to get on there. The clock's running and you just heave it. And, and you don't have a clue on how you're trying to break down a hitter, not only in his first at bat, but when you really need it in his second or third at bat, when he's already seen everything that you could throw at him and you're just winding up and you're just heaving and you're hoping he pops it up, grounds it out, whatever. So I said, you know, that's the main thing. We were power pitchers. You know, your relievers, your big time relievers, I tease them that, you know, some of those guys, they come at you with hips, elbows, booty legs, everything. I mean, they look like a blender with the lid off of it and they're throwing a hundred miles an hour, but they're only out there for 15 pitches. You can get away with that. Um, and, and, uh, and, and all these kids busters, again, they, they, all these guys throw hard for the most part, but being a power pitcher. And of course I got to see the ultimate power pitcher of, of all time. I think got to play with him in Boston and Tom Seaver, you know, Sieve was out there at 40 in his mid forties. And, uh, of course, Bill Fisher, my pitching coach, had Sieve in Cincinnati. And I'm watching him. I'm watching Tom Sieber out there grunt balls up there 88 miles an hour. And he got second, third, one out. And he goes, punch out, punch out, 94, 93, 94. And I go, okay, there, here we go. Okay, I got you now. I see what's going on. So um, those guys can learn a lot about it. But I talk to him about how I wake up in the morning and go through my day till I get to the stadium. And then we're doing our thing and getting out there. The pitch clock for me, Buster, wouldn't have been, again, I, I, you know, again, right now, when I look at it, there's some ways that I would exploit it. I'm not so sure. I may talk about it on the telecast. Um, I'm not so sure that, um, you know, back in the day when I think about, you know, again, late 80s, early 90s, uh, I'm not so sure, you know, they would get on you when you gave up an 0-2 base hit. You know, you'd almost get fined. So I'm not so sure if I didn't get some of these guys 0-2 right now with this pitch clock, and I knew they swung the bat or saw the ball out of my hand really well off me. I know who those guys are. I'm not so sure that I just wouldn't uh, hold the ball and get the, uh, you know, the pitch clock penalty wow. and make it one and two right there instead of because most guys that are wasting pitches, they're when 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 I talk about an 0-2 pitch to them, I want them to have the hitter almost offer at it to at least make a check swing or keep it in the area, but they miss so bad with an 0-2 pitch in the dirt or wherever, um, you know, they don't even offer at it. So I'm not too sure that – then that hitter might think, okay, is he going to throw this next one or is he going to take another penalty to make a 2-2? So there's all kinds of – you know, you talk about the game 60 feet, 6 inches with one another again. Um, this will make it a little more interesting to a veteran pitcher that knows what he's doing. Shirts are exploited it a little bit. He tried it. 
And I'm not so sure that he won't do that uh, when the bell rings. Yeah, when I covered you as a pitcher, I loved, you know, what I learned from you about controlling tempo and the relation, your relationship with the catchers, I found to be fascinating. I always talked about how, you know, Andy Pettit was the plow horse who wanted the catcher to sort of point him in the right direction. You were more of a collaborator with your catchers. I felt like uh, David Cohn, on the other hand, you know, he wanted to, to, to control everything. Like I could see him being the guy who'd use pitch com, like this is what I'm throwing in this moment where I, I always felt like you wanted to, you know, to, to work with your catcher, have an understanding with the catcher going into a game, how you wanted to work. But, you know, I'll ask you about that. And I've already taken up a lot of your time. Uh, yeah. The next time I have you on, I'll ask you about it. And I can't wait to see you in Houston. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm looking forward to it and uh, it should be fun. We're going to have a good time with everybody. Absolutely. And and you're going to have to speed tell your stories now. <laughs> uh, you got that right. I've been thinking about that. <laughs> you're not going to be we're not going to be have any in-depth stories anymore because it, before you know it there's going to be two outs the way these guys are working and then uh, uh we'll be in a commercial break. <laughs> All right, Roger, good to see you. Okay, see you later. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes. The clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Boston Red Sox. The Red Sox were one of baseball's most disappointing teams last season, which was kind of a disaster from start to finish. Chris Sale, theoretically the team ace, got hurt during the lockout and made just two starts before he suffered a season-ending broken finger. The team's half-hearted attempt to sign Xander Bogarts seemed to infect the clubhouse with a lot of under-the-radar anger. Anger that was stoked when longtime catcher Christian Vasquez was traded at the deadline without being informed by anyone in the front office. The Red Sox went 78 and 8 it was a mess. Newcomers. The Red Sox spent big on Masataka Yoshida, $90 million, a price that scared away teams concerned about whether he is playable on defense. Boston also signed closer Kenley Jansen in the anticipation he'll stabilize the bullpen, and they locked up veteran Justin Turner for his production and for his clubhouse presence. Breakout star. The Boston lineup seems short when compared to other Red Sox teams that have contended in the AL East, which is why the development of Tristan Cassis is so crucial. The first baseman controlled the strike zone in the minor leagues, drawing 165 walks in 284 games with 46 home runs. The Red Sox need Cassis to hit somewhere in the top six spots in their lineup and to be productive, especially when injuries inevitably take a toll on the batting order depth. The X Factor. 
The Red Sox probably moved too slowly to address their bullpen issues in 2022 when Boston finished 26th in reliever ERA. And this winter, they aim for significant change with this group, adding Hall of Fame candidate Jansen, right-hander Chris Martin, and left-hander Joely Rodriguez. A Boston turnaround cannot happen without a major change in performance from this group. Fault lines. Yet again, it's a starting rotation because it's hard to know exactly what Chris Sale will be. Over the last three seasons, he made a total of 11 starts. Corey Kluber gets the ball on opening day, started 31 times for the Rays last year, and posted a 4-3-4 ERA. James Paxton will open the season on the injured list, as will the up-and-coming Brian Bello, who had injury issues this spring. Nick Pavetta seems to be a key guy, in part because all the uncertainty with the rest of the group. The Baseball Tonight Podcast win projection. Sarah Lang says 76. Paul Hemikides projects 80 wins for Boston. I say 78. Pakoda gets the last word. 79.6 wins. Jessica Mendoza is an analyst for ESPN. She also does color on Dodger broadcast. Jess, how you doing? I'm doing great. Are you kidding me? This is like the best week of baseball ever. <laughs> so, ever. I think so. I mean, just, oh my gosh, the games and obviously the, you know, everyone has been talking about Otani Trout, of course, but just, I mean, diving into, I don't know, I played in Japan for so long, Buster. So to see them, you know, obviously that the, the speech that Otani gave them ahead of time, but to see them execute the way that they did in a way that is so pure to the game and so true to another country that does things differently than we do. Um, and what I mean by that is like how their pitchers are able to pinpoint precision, um, you know, execute and utilize how contact is king um, when it comes to at bats for their hitters um, and how you can still have power with that. It just reminded, it brought me back so much to like playing over there and the culture. And it was, it was such a beautiful, beautiful, amazing game. Yeah, it really was. And I, I love the, uh, you know, the respect that, uh, that was always there inherent, uh, to the competition. It felt like everyone was sort of deferring to the competition, you know, uh, the way the teams, uh, I, I think respect each other. I love after Japan, uh, eliminated Mexico, how they all stood and bowed to team Mexico standing on the foul line. Right. And then yep. team USA getting the silver medal and coming back out together, you know, I heard a story about how Trout was up in the in the clubhouse. He obviously was frustrated with being having struck out at the end of the game. He was kind of down. And then they told him, hey, uh, they've got the silver medal ceremony. He throws his shoes back on and runs back out there. Uh, it, it was it was such a great celebration of baseball. I'm curious. I talked in the podcast yesterday because you've been in these type of matchups against pitchers who you know uh, personally. And I was, I would love to be a fly on the wall for the next conversation between Trout and Otani about the pitch selection and the 3-2 count. Because I did think that Otani was just going to challenge him with a fastball, uh, like big brother, little brother playing pickup ball and saying, you know what, I'm going to hit a three or I'm going to dunk on you. Uh, it was obviously a great pitch. Uh, what was your takeaway from that plate appearance? Well, I mean, if you look at Trout's at bats, and obviously this is what Japan did um, coming into that game, like he was struggling with velocity, um, which, you know, isn't something obviously Mike Trout rarely struggles against anything for any long period of time. But you look at his numbers from the tournament, you know, I think it was eight strikeouts and 15 at bats and, you know, just 
the, the swing and miss was there for, and not even high, like we're talking just fastballs. And so that clearly was the plan for Otani and, you know, he's hitting a hundred. So like, it's not, and again, with that, that accuracy, I think to me, it was three, two, then of course, it's like the freaking t-shirt you had when you were a kid, like the moment you dream of it gets to that point. It's a full count. What's going to happen. You got Goldie on deck. So it's not like the easy, okay, I give in, put him on base. Like that's the last thing you want to do. That slider buster, knowing that Mike was not catching up to a hundred, those swings and misses. And one of them just, I mean, it looked like everything with his swing was exactly where you needed to be. He was late. So the fact that Otani went to a slider 3-2 and the way that he threw that so that it would be a strike. So Trout, I just I want to replay that pitch for so many young pitchers, older pitchers, just to understand execution when you've got pressure flowing through your veins and to be able to throw what he threw in that moment to me stands out with the Jordans and the Bradys and the, the goats, right? That's what a goat to me is, is in the biggest pressure moment, which we had yet to see with Otani. We don't see him in championships to be able to execute your best pitch in the best moment that, I mean, I'm talking about like 0.0005% of anyone who plays anything can do that. Forgive me. I'm slightly distracted by your dog behind you. Who's popping his head <laughs> out the window. Like, look, and he, he's like trying to, you know, see everything out. Right. Exactly. He He's just like. So you're having, you're talking baseball again, huh? Yeah, totally. It's like, mom, come on. <laughs> Can so, we please stop breaking down the Otani 3-2 pitch? <laughs> right, exactly. So tell me, going forward, I've gotten this uh, question on some radio. I mean, it's a great WBC early this year. If you're uh, the head of the Player Association, you're Rob Manfred, how are you building on this? I personally think that the next time around, they should build All-Star Week around the WBC semifinals and finals. So the way I would structure it, Monday, home run derby, Tuesday, WBC semifinals, Wednesday, play the All-Star game, uh, Thursday, do the WBC final, off day Friday, pick up the schedule Saturday. That's what I would when do. Are, when are you playing the first and second rounds? Like, is that In happening? Training. Okay, yeah. so you're so you're splitting up the tournament. Yes. I don't like that. Okay. <laughs> um, and the reason, the reason I say that is there's something about momentum and um, honestly, just that, that chemistry and that feeling. And I mean, you saw it, I mean, even the games that, you know, in Japan, watching the international component of that and, and then the momentum that comes with, you know, Japan being undefeated coming in 16 hours to Miami. And it's like, just playing in those tournaments, like that's what you're feeding off of is like, oh man, did you see that sick play that I made? You know, and then it, it goes into the semifinals and it goes into the championship. You get this month's hiatus, which, you know, for the WCA, I know we've talked injuries for major league players, but like, what about like then your team? It's like you lose two or three of your players during the regular season, that first half. And now it's like, shoot, we're not even the same team we were that got us to the semifinal place. I love the concept, the idea. But as someone like play, who's played in the Olympics, there is something about those first rounds that just feeds into what you do in the semifinal and then gold medal match. Okay. So what? Well, how would you build <laughs> on it then? You re, you rejected my thought. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I like when it is. I mean, I know there's a lot of complaint, and I know that there's. But I mean, you think about it. it opening days in a week. 
Like, how cool is that? Like, I, I, I just feel the excitement. I understand it's hard for players to, you know, come straight out of the shoot. They're in spring training mode. Um, but I, I think we can go round and round of like, okay, let's do this after October, after the World Series, and then the World Baseball Classic starts. And, you know, there's that option. I love what you're saying. I think Major League Baseball should give it the two weeks off. Like, my argument to you is either keep it where it is or give them another seven days where the W the, the league stops. I mean, look at the Olympics, look at what hockey does. I mean, they stop their season because they recognize this is only that we all win. We all win. So you stop in July, seven days earlier, and then lead into the all-star breaks. So your first and second rounds are being played leading into the all-stars. And now you have an all-star game. You have a home run derby. You've got the semis, you've got the, um, that is the best win for baseball, Major League Baseball, and the owners need to be able to understand, like, do what's better for the sport in a week. We're talking seven days of your season is paused, and now we lead into All-Star break with this amazing, amazing event. Yeah, that'll never happen. <laughs> because you know that the big market owners are not going to say, you know what, we'll take one for the team and we'll uh, set aside a week of of full houses kids out of school, uh, attendance in our ballpark, and we're going to trade it for the good of baseball. Which is I, why I, it's I like your stay. idea. I like the thought behind it. I just, uh, I just don't know that the sport's there. Well, which is why it's going to stay where it's at. So there's been all this talk of, oh, but we could be, we could, we could. Well, until the owners can understand what's better right. for the game and honestly better for them. Like, I believe that. And I, I, I get that, like, but if you're already talking about a semi and maybe a final during all-star break, you're already sacrificing the fact that your players could get hurt in the middle of the season. So that argument is gone to me if you're you're even considering that. So now, like, I mean, we're talking about once every three years, like, come on, like, like let's, and I know it's easy for us to say, and for an owner who's very selfish with their finances, I get it. Um, but that to me is, is what it's about. And, and if they can't watch what they saw this week and not say yes, then, I mean, why are you owning a team? Like, I mean, that's just, that's my perspective. And I, I do believe it's going to stay where it's at because I, I agree with you. I don't think you're going to get 30 owners to to buy in that. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it was in the 1960s that Wellington Mara, who was the owner of the Giants, New York Giants, football Giants, um, basically deferred to the sport and agreed to give up television rights to be negotiated by the NFL rather than the New York Giants television rights. And that completely changed the trajectory of that sport that you had a big market owner in that case saying, okay, you know what? We're going to grow this business and do exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Jess, and look yes. where the, and look where the sport is. Those owners exist. It's getting 30 of them. I think that's, that's what, I mean, I mean, we can talk days about getting owners to agree on all kinds of things, but it's getting there. And honestly, like maybe having Rob Manfred make it like mandatory, you know, and just saying this is important. If you've got 23 owners on board and those other seven, it's like, well, this is how we're moving forward because the majority gets it. You were just in Dodger camp. Uh, it, it That team for as much stability as it's had over the last decade, man, a lot of change this spring. Absolutely. And obviously the Gavin Lux injury being like first and foremost is what's gotten the attention, but being, being at camp buster, like, it's just different when you think about Justin Turner, who, especially for the fan, I'm, you know, I'm just walking around and you're watching, you've, you've seen it where all the fans are kind of like, you know, roped off, but they're taking photos because they can basically watch these guys take BP, watch them warm up, you know, 
like in their bullpen before they even head over the field. And there's all these fans. And all I kept hearing is where's Justin Turner. And there's guys still with the, the, the shirts with the beard. And, you know, he's been such a face of the fan- franchise. And I know this, this happens, but Cody Bellinger, the energy, usually you see him. It's like a 10 year old boy just bouncing around. He, he reminds me of Tigger, um, like literally just like <laughs> bouncing and bouncing like all over the place. And that's what you're used to these last five, six years and seeing Cody and, you know, his presence. And you talked about Trey Turner. I know yesterday in the WBC, and I know he's not a staple with the Dodgers, but he's definitely was a huge part of their team um, last year. And that shortstop position, which has now been even further hurt. So it was just interesting watching James Outman and Miguel Vargas, especially two young guys. And then, you know, you almost forget. And I think most fans are going to not realize, but they're going to see JD Martinez and Jason Hayward and faces that you're like, wait, they're with the Dodgers kind of like mind blown and watching that leadership, watching Freddie Freeman really get into conversation with JD and Jason, especially, um, you know, almost looking to them and those conversations, the way that Mookie did when Freddie Freeman came over last year. So I love that stuff, but to be honest, this team looks a lot different. And for 10 years, I feel like even though there were changes, they never felt huge. This year feels huge and very different. So give me the name of someone who you view as pivotal and and don't, you know, we'll take Mookie out of the equation. We'll take Freddie Freeman. We'll take Will Smith. We'll take the usual suspects out of the equation. Give me the name of a player on that roster that you feel like, boy, they really need him to take a step forward. I don't know if it's step forward, but they need him like circle him as like what the Dodgers are going to do as far as moves the next, you know, as we get into the season or at least heading into the trade deadline is Miguel Rojas with Gavin Lux going down that that was the, the you know, watching him at shortstop, watching him kind of be the guy right now that you know, they're, they're really leaning on. I was watching him defensively. I mean, the glove is there. The offense was not the last few years. He looks good. I mean, it's so hard in spring. I mean, in the cages without the pressure, the nerves, everything like that, but he's the one I circle and, and step forward would definitely be with the bat. The Dodgers can afford, I get it to not have everyone in the lineup be an (laughs) all-star. I mean, we're so spoiled with every single player, but to understand the way this organization works, they will not keep a shortstop that isn't going to to live to their standard offensively as well. And so to see where that bat is, I think it's going to be a huge look as we start the season and we head to that trade deadline if the Dodgers make a move for shortstop. What uniform will Shohei Otani be wearing in 2024? Oh, in wow. a related question. <laughs> yeah. You know, I... I <laughs> I want, this is just like total probably bias and just thinking about Japanese, you know, like culture and like just how much, like if you were to pick the one team that maybe was watched the most um, growing up in Japan, and I'm just making assumptions here, but playing over there, the number one team that was always watched because of Ichiro was the Seattle Mariners. And knowing, and I know that like everyone's heart sinks, <laughs> like I say, like a smaller market team, but I I only see that in that I remember um, it's, uh, doing the Olympics in Tokyo a couple of years ago. And that's like the number one jersey beyond Shohei's that you still see. And you think about that Shohei era. So when he's 10, 11 years old and he's watching Major League Baseball, that's the team that, that, or that's the player. Ichiro is the player, you know, and the team that gets to watch the most, knowing that Shohei is not, he's shown us that he's not a big market guy or it feels like that. 
I see, I don't know. And that's like totally going out on a limb, but I, I could see him shocking the world and staying small market and going to a team like Seattle, which would disappoint everyone, but they're, they're up and coming. They definitely look better than the angels right now. One minute left. What's the contract number total value that Otani gets based on what we saw in the WBC, based on the fact that there's nobody else like him in the history of baseball production on both sides of the ball and maybe nobody since uh, Babe Ruth in terms of separating himself and marketability. I mean, is this where we see half a billion, you know, is this where that 500 million mark? I think what's hard about total is, is also understanding years and longevity. Um, but do you see a 50 million a year? Like, is that no a mark that gets hit? So like that to me, and, you know, I don't know if it'll be over 10 years. I don't know if they, they, you know, like how all the years and everything works out, but to me, absolutely. And what he showed us in the WBC Buster is what just to me doubled <laughs> because we already know the talent, the unicorn, all the names, everything we've heard about him. Yes, we've talked about it at length. We never really knew pressure, Buster. We didn't. And we've seen the best players, especially you, you've seen the best players crumble under the, the, the and I understand it. <laughs> to see Shohei do what he did shows you that he truly stands out amongst the best that we have ever seen in baseball because of that ability to, to be able to execute under pressure. Right, Jess. Good to talk with you. Good to see you. Thanks, Buster. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com and also someone who did a ton of work at the uh, recent WBC, which is going to be something we're all going to remember the rest of our lives. Sarah, as you come in, I'm curious about, because you you become a media superstar, that's fairly apparent from watching social media. Tell me about an interaction that you had at the WBC that you really enjoyed. Oh my goodness. I mean, the entire, the entire week, multiple weeks, I think it was two weeks that was on the road, were so amazing, so overwhelming. I mean, I was sending out these daily game notes to every credentialed media member who was covering the event. People would come up to me and say, hey, you know, I was able to write my story last night thanks to your notes and introduce themselves. And it was just all so, so very kind. Uh, one person who I really enjoyed meeting was uh, Vic Baez, who does uh, PR for Toro Del Este of the uh, Dominican Winter League. He came over, we were chatting. He's like, hey, this is what I do. And I was like, I love Lee Dome. And he's like, I know, which was a really fun moment. And we talked about how great that league is. So it's just amazing how far and wide baseball stretches. And you really see that at the WBC. But to see it from the media side as well, meeting media members who are from Japan, from, I mean, the Dominican Republic, all around, it's really, really cool. Yeah, and those connections now going through you as well, have people seeking you out, that, uh, that's pretty cool. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is one. So we're going to wrap up the WBC. I know, I mean, it's crazy because we're speaking on Friday. It only ended a couple of days ago. It feels forever ago, but also like it was last night. So we have to talk about Shohei Otani. The number one is for 
all of the things that he led everyone in the WBC in. He had the hardest hit batted ball of the tournament at 118.7 miles an hour. He was tied for the fastest thrown pitch of the tournament at 102. And he was tied for the longest home run of the tournament at 448 feet. And this isn't a one, but my absolute favorite moment from him was, I mean, it has to be the matchup with Trout, I guess. But before that, when he was warming up in the bullpen and then jogging back to the dugout to get ready to hit, not hitting, going back to the bullpen, then coming back in between all of that, got a 114 mile an hour infield single and legged it out at elite speed. And then he ends up coming in for the save. I mean, he is one of one. Absolutely incredible. Number two. Number two is 13. So Masataka Yoshida, who is now on the Red Sox, which makes this relevant moving forward as well, had 13 RBI in the WBC. We talked on Monday morning. I mentioned he had 10 as I was talking about Trey Turner. And then he went and got three RBI that night to set the record for the most in a single WBC It's also the most by anyone on Team Japan in the WBC career. We'll see how MLB uh, career starts off for him, but I have to say Red Sox fans have to be a lot more excited for the season today than they were two weeks ago. Number one. Number one is seven. So we know spring training stats don't really matter. I mean, It's good to see a player have a good time over the course of the month, see them play well. That tends to bode well, but there's no direct correlation. But Matt Wilson has been hitting a ton of home runs, so he has seven. And I was curious where that might rank in Braves history in spring training. So we have spring training stats back to 2006. And there have been two other instances of a Braves player having seven home runs in spring training. And again, that is the most for Brave in that span. And of course, it was Freddie Freeman in both 2012 and 2013. We have a couple of days left of spring training. But if anyone is curious if Matt Olson could set the record again since 2006, it is 11 by Brian Howard in 06. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, well, then I can go back at my son, Jake, because he's like every day text me, Matt Olson, another home run. I can say, hey, it's been done before. Uh, a <laughs> couple of quick follow-ups. You mentioned Yoshida, uh, you know, and how he was so great in the WBC. I must say that when Alex Cora basically indicated to reporters that because Raphael Devers prefers to hit second and he's a left-handed hitter, that he was going to go with that, which makes sense. He's the highest paid player on the team, and he's the star of the team. And he put Yoshida in the clean in the cleanup spot. I thought, oh, boy, you know, because I thought of him as being more of a prototypical, what used to be the number two type hitter, you know, go for more hits. And then after I watched the WBC, I'm like, no, he'll be good as a cleanup hitter in Boston, in Fenway Park. What do you think? Absolutely. I totally agree. And man, he was really fun to watch. Just watching him take BP and warming up and everything. I mean, 
it was a really cool way to get an introduction to a player we're going to see 162 times this year. But I, I think his bat looked really good, and I agree 100%. I mean, he showed anyone who's getting 13 RBI in this quick tournament is showing he can clean up anywhere. All right, so... And I was talking to Carl Rabbits about how it seems like so many of the major injuries, issues going on are with the National League East teams. As we sit here today, Reese Hoskins out for the Phillies for the year. Uh, Edwin Diaz, closer for the Mets, out for the year. The Braves with their issues. How are you picking the National League East? Carl surprised me by saying he's picking the Phillies to win the division. And then the Mets finishing second, Braves third. I've got the Braves first, the Mets second, the Phillies third. What about you? That's what I had as we've been going through our wins predictions for your season preview capsule. I had the Braves first, Mets second, and Phillies third. I know Carl's really high on the Phillies, and every time I hear him say that, I kind of question myself and say maybe I should be too. I think these three teams are all going to be really good, even with the injuries and, you know, the Braves having a, that competition at shortstop that didn't really probably go the way they wanted it to. Ultimately, I do think I'll stick with my convictions and stick with the Braves for now. I think they are the healthiest of these teams, uh, as we see. And yeah, I think I will stick with Braves, Mets, Phillies, but going to be fascinating to see and I just wonder who's going to step up I mean you think of a guy like Bryson Stott and what he did for them last year and whether he finds a way to step up fill that absence in the lineup there's so many guys on these teams that could play those kinds of roles but I'll stick with what I've said so that this season preview capsule does stay good as well yeah, and oh, by the way, the big X factor for all three teams is the aggressiveness of the respective head of baseball operations. Billy Epler working for Steve Cohen. Does anyone think Steve Cohen's not going to spend at the trade deadline? Dave Dombrowski with his history of adding guys in midseason. And Alex Anthopoulos, who basically helped the Braves win the World Series in 2021 because of what he added at the deadline. So you know that all these teams at the big arms race uh, at the trade deadline is going to be in the National League East. All right, Sarah, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Buster. Miami Marlins. The Marlins didn't land any of the big-name free agents who signed during the offseason, but they did affect major change to their roster in an attempt to add some offense to what should be an excellent pitching staff. Reaching the playoffs might be a goal out of reach for Miami, but the Marlins should improve over last year's record of 69-93 behind a great rotation that starts with Cy Young Award winner Sandy Alcantara. Newcomers. The Marlins have a new first baseman, Yuli Gurriel, a new second baseman, Luisa Rise, a new shortstop with Joey Wendell moving to this spot after playing there in 34 games last season. The third baseman is new, Gene Segura, who played 24 games in this spot in his big league career. And the center fielder is new to his position, Jazz Chisholm converted from the infield. They also signed Johnny Cueto and traded for A.J. Puck. And manager Skip Schumacher is in his first year as a major league manager replacing Don Mattingly. Fault lines. 
The Marlins lineup will probably struggle for runs, but the weakest part of the team might turn out to be its defense. With so many players shifting out of the spots they've most commonly played in the majors. Look, for a team relying on its pitching, this is a big deal. The Baseball Tonight Podcast win projection. Dakota says 79.7 wins. Sarah Langs checks in at 76. Hembo's kind of down on the Marlins, pecking them for 72 wins. I say 77 wins. I'm hearing great things about the Marlins pitching from other folks in spring training. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Friday. First up, we have... Uh, Mitchell at Tigers of Detroit. He writes in, I found myself wondering why Kyle Tucker sat two straight games to end the WBC, and I believe I now know why. His benching comes shortly after the broken thumb of Astros teammate Jose Altuve. Do you agree that orders were given? No, that's not accurate. What happened was Kyle Tucker suffered a minor ankle injury, which the Astros acknowledged. Uh, The Astros were frustrated because they could not get Kyle Tucker back to their camp for treatment and examination. So it it wasn't that their orders came down. It was that he actually was dealing with an injury. Benjamin Chamberlain at Ballpark Ben writes in, our family's opening day tradition is to decorate the front of the house with red, white, and blue bunting. When the Dodgers won the World Series, we held a ring ceremony on opening day with our kids and neighbors. Kids got ring pops. I love that, Benjamin. I love that. Absolutely. That That is pretty cool. I did not do that for my son after the, his favorite team, <laughs> the Braves, won the World Series. So you're a better dad than me. Love some good red, white, and blue bunting. Last one for the week. Steven Schulman at Pro Bono Dude writes in, Oh, Buster, I'm as big a fan of 80s baseball as anyone, but Welch versus Jackson ending a single game isn't nearly as good as Wayne Wright's Uncle Charlie to strike out Beltran to end the 2006 NLCS. What do you think about that? So, so Stephen, apparently you're not as big of a fan of 80s baseball as anyone because Welch versus Jackson happened in the 70s. Oh, Come on. And no, I'm sorry, but Welch versus Jackson, it was a World Series game, game two of a World Series, the first fall after Reggie had that three-homer game and became Mr. October. So I reject your premise. What do you think, Taylor? You want to be the tiebreaker? Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with you, Buster. And I, I really like that you're setting our bleachers tweeters, tweeters straight today. You know, not, not <laughs> they weren't coming for you, but you know, you're you're just dropping knowledge on them. So I appreciate that. I'm sure they do too. Uh, keeps right, keep right in, everyone. It's gonna be a couple days again until our next episode. We're gonna go Wednesday, Thursday, Friday to drive into that opening weekend. So send them on in. I'm sure we'll have a bunch of them come next Wednesday. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. Before I go, I want to send my best wishes, the best wishes of folks here at ESPN to Eric Nadell, uh, the broadcaster for the Texas Rangers. He's going to miss the start of his 29th season uh, as he gets treatment for his mental health. The statement he put out the other day, I now find myself dealing with anxiety, insomnia, and depression, which are currently preventing me from doing the job I love. And anyone who's met Eric knows, man, he loves baseball. And I can't wait for him to get back. Uh, you know, I'm sorry that we're going to miss him uh, in Arlington next weekend. But uh, boy, all the best to Eric. You are so great for baseball. Uh, that's it for today. My thanks to Roger Clemens, to Jess, to Ravi, to Sarah, Bruce, Taylor, Sarah. Uh, have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. And as we go out, here's the sound of Bob Welch striking out Reggie Jackson to end game two of the 1978 World Series.
Three balls, two strikes, two outs, and they pick up the percentage now. Paul Blair will be off as soon as Welsh starts at the plate. Quite possible he could score on that long single. Percentage to go to three and two, and it swings to the Yankees, and Jackson makes the gateway. Dent second. Blair at first. Two outs. 